MNK Talk YA now presents Five Dark Fates Part 1 of the Three Dark Crown series by Kendar Blake. Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this week we started the fourth book <laughs> of the Three Dark Crowns series by Kendare Blake. This book is called Five Dark Fates, and we read up to two poisoners? No, two prisoners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I was man. just waiting to listen to all the numbers that you were gonna have to say. <laughs> I was thinking too much about the numbers and then I forgot the words. I was like, poisoners isn't right, is it? Yeah, so we have half a book left in the series and only one more time to get all the numbers right. So that's good. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) I'm actually kind of, I feel like the other book titles have fit more and maybe we'll discover more as this goes on, but Five Dark Fates, I guess, based on the cover, it has the five powers, you know, sight, war power, naturalists, elementals, poisoners. And maybe it has something to do with that and the fate of the island. But I sort of feel like right now the title doesn't fit the book as much as the other ones kind of did. Well, that got me thinking about, I mean, the first one, Three Dark Crowns. I get it. Mm -hmm. The second one, Two Dark Reigns. Did we think that one was about Catherine and Jules? I guess, yeah. Okay. Because the only other thing I could think of was maybe Catherine and the Blue Queen. Because it kind of like introduced her, but... Oh, wait. No, wait. Which one? What was the third one called? Now I'm forgetting which one's which. Oh, oh, oh. Actually, you're right. Three Dark Crowns, One Dark Throne. Okay, so that okay, was One Dark Throne was, was Catherine, yeah, beating out her sisters. And then Two right. Dark Reigns, yeah, was the, I think, Jewels gathering forces versus Catherine gathering forces, I think. Okay. But I guess to your That's point, it, I I, it could have multiple meanings because we did learn about, no, wait, we learned about the, yeah, we learned about the Blue Queen then. I can't even remember what happened in which book now. Well, because the Two Dark Reigns, the um, the cover shows um, Sweetheart, the snake. So I thought that was Catherine. But then the other one is this like blue sphere with a person on it. I have no idea what that is. Oh, yeah. I didn't really think about the cover as much because to me the title sort of made sense when I was reading it. And I think this time the title hasn't made sense to me, which is why I was reading into the cover more. Yeah, now I'm looking at the cover, Five Dark Fates. Oh, okay, so yeah, so it has the, it's got a lot of snakes on it again. Oh, but it has the, um, the yeah, you're right, the, the five the... symbols of the island or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, you're right about the two dark rains. Yeah, I don't know what those two, like, standards are, or those two Well, staff. and then this other thing, or this other version of the book, it says something about two exiled, so it's also kind of like two, I don't know, there's a lot of twos, I guess. The numbers game is confusing. But... Again, this is kind of getting back to this idea. I think it really worked for the first two books. Three dark crowns and one dark throne, right? No, one dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I sort of felt like there was like this thing that she had to keep going with and it hasn't fit maybe (laughs) as cleanly. I don't know. Two dark reigns I sort of bought, but this one I haven't gotten yet. Unless, unless, and I think maybe we're getting somewhere because we're bringing in all this old stuff and we're talking about the queens and um, the goddess and all this. I'm hoping that Mm. at the end of this book, we've kind of 
finished something that started back in the original creation of the island and the goddess and the magic. I'm not exactly sure if that looks like if there's no more magic or if there's just no more queens or if it's something else entirely. But I do sort of feel like we're about to change history here. I agree. And I liked the idea that they threw out in this book that um, the goddess was the first queen who bore Mm -hmm. the triplet. So it all ties back to the goddess and something's going to happen where like the mist is going to be destroyed and then the magic will end and there won't be any more triplets. That's my prediction. Okay. Although I have, I was thinking about this one small thing. This is very small, but so you know how all the dead Queens get thrown into the Bracca domain, like their bodies get thrown there and that's where Catherine encountered them for the first time or whatever. And they were able to get out by using her body. Oh, yeah. When they have a blue queen, the bodies get, like, sent off to sea and burned up and stuff like that. So they, so it must not, it must be only the ones that were killed by their sister that end up there? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it is, I don't think any of the queens in the Brescia domain are babies. I think they're all adult They tried, yeah. killed by their sisters, yeah. I'm also curious, because I feel like there's all these rules around it, but, like, what if one of the queens in one of the years before the age of 16 or whenever this whole thing started just like had an accidental death for some other reason i wonder if people would be punished Mm. for it or if like if they really are supposed to like protect them to their own detriment or something you know what i mean like if that would have been a cool like side story a little Mm -hmm. bit about like someone being punished for like letting a queen die yeah anyways i'm rambling so let's talk about (laughs) let's start this book (laughs) let's finish off or let's start where Let's start where we started. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start where we started. All right. (laughs) So it opens with Peter in a coma. So he's not dead yet. I really thought he was going to be dead. Did you want him to be dead? I did. (laughs) Well, I'm still confused. I, I guess I'm okay that he's in the coma if I, like, understood everything that was happening more. And I sort of feel like even though Catherine's been talking to the queens and she's learned how to put them in someone else's body without putting someone in a coma, I don't feel like we understand why it happened the way it happened with Peter. Agreed. Because Catherine says, or she learns that you can put the queens in another body as long as that body is either willing or weakened. And it also seems like the queens have to want to go to it. Or at least that's how it seems so far. I don't know. Yeah. But that's like, still, I don't know. That that just seems like a strange um caveat a little bit you know like like peter's in a coma because she sent the queens into him and now all of a sudden she's sending them into row and using her as like her zombie shell and it's just i don't like that it had such drastic results with peter and now she's just putting them into bodies willy-nilly and the only explanation is that peter wasn't weakened or willing because I also feel like he was kind of willing like I don't think he knew what he was doing but I think he was willing to do whatever he could to take the queens out of Catherine which to me would mean with my understanding of magic kind of like he maybe didn't anticipate that they would come into him but I sort of almost feel like that would have made him a good vessel I don't know if that makes sense yeah and like maybe if they had just said it had to go into a willing body I could buy it but the fact that like because what's the difference between being weakened and unwilling and just unwilling? To me, that's, that's like not a very big difference. So yeah, and now that Peter's in a coma, isn't he really weak? Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I just so, thought it was a. I didn't like that excuse. I'm kind of okay with the fact that he's in the coma, but I just don't understand to your to what we were just saying how it worked one way for him and a different way for 
Roe and what's going forward. Yeah. I wanted a better explanation. But the cool thing is, and now I'm jumping totally to the end, is because he's not dead, he is one of our two prisoners. So we had that estimate wrong. It was not any of the queens. Zero queens instead of two queens. It was uh, two boys. (laughs) Ugh, two boys. And the men are usually useless in this book. So, again, it sticks with that theme. So they might as well just be prisoners. Yeah. (laughs) They might as well just be in prison. What are you doing? Oh, Billy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So we can talk about this more later, but I actually ended up researching a little bit about comas because of Peter's current condition. (laughs) But I just need to tell you some of the other things I like clicked on this week because I was really having like my brain was going all different places and I was struggling with what to research. And I like clicked on stories like um, there was some article I clicked on that was like Americans say English words wrong. And I was just like reading all these stories about people, English speakers around the world talking about how Americans say things wrong. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like how we said arsenoy wrong. And I was like, no, that's way too far fetched. And then there was another one I clicked on this week. It was like things you can't unsee once they've been pointed out to you. What are some examples? Like the arrow and the FedEx logo? Yeah, or even things like if there's a mixing pixel on the TV, like you may not notice it mm. at first, but then you like stare at it as soon as you notice it or, you know, like a like a mark on a window or in, anything like that. Or like some like uh, we moved into our house. We had seen it however many times. And then one day my mom pointed out that our blinds are on the middle window downstairs are different than the side windows downstairs. And it's not a significant mm-hmm. difference. But now it's like the only thing I can see when I look at them and it's driving me crazy. Yeah, and now you're, you're bothered by it. <laughs> yeah. And my whole, the way I was going to connect that piece to this was I was like, oh, well, Mirabella, now that she heard that there's, the dead are inside her about Catherine, she like can't help but invest. And I was like, no, my, so then I started researching comas, but um, I thought you would appreciate my random attempts to connect things I was reading back to this book. (laughs) I mean, that's some impressive connections trying to make that work, I have to say. But I honestly am like not much better because I did my research about a half hour ago. Because I was the same way. I was like, I have no idea what to research this week. Sometimes it's hard because when we, it's always like a longer series because all the things I really want to research, I tend to have already researched, which isn't mm-hmm. entirely fair because I know like action and new things come up and whatnot. But like even the fact, like last week you talked about triplets, right? I was like, oh, I can't believe we hadn't thought about that before. But even now I was like, okay, we've already talked about triplets. We've already talked about, you know, C-sections. Like, I mean, like yep. it was like almost everything we talked about so many things on this series already it was hard to come up with something new but anyways we can go back to so peter's in a coma (laughs) mirabella ended up back with Catherine, and she's trying to uncover what magical said right before she died about the dead being inside of her which we know are the queens and i and Catherine or mirabella now knows that by the end of this book but um she spent a lot of time trying to uncover what that was and in part because she wanted to help Catherine. So we are seeing a little bit more of, at least from Mirabelle and Catherine's side, they're not completely trusting each other yet, but they kind of want to trust each other, at least. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you think about Mira's new stand where she's like, I'm not against Arsenault, I will never be against Arsenault, but I'm also helping you. Like, how do you feel about that? I just feel like it's a kind of a weird position to be in because like, right now, you kind of have to pick sides. And it's weird that she's, like, not helping either of them, but also is helping both of them. Yeah, I guess. I think it's kind of weird when you think about it from a... Okay, the island is sort of divided in two. It seems like 
there's this fundamental difference between what each group is trying to do and shouldn't you feel strongly about that fundamental difference in some way but I think where I buy into it and if you like look at it from the lens of she's the oldest sibling she remembers both of her sisters and like they're her priority so she like I can imagine if Megan and Aaron weren't getting along or whatever like you know not truly picking sides between them but somehow wanting to be a good sister to both of them and that could be tricky and it may not make sense and it like whatever they're arguing about is sort of beside the point because at the end of the day they're both my sister if that makes sense totally I just think it's hard for Arsenault and Catherine to both trust Mira now because Mm -hmm. I mean Arsenault especially was like convinced that Mira was kidnapped she was like there's no way she would have gone over to Catherine intentionally yeah I think uh Mirabella could have done a lot more laying the groundwork before even if she had been like hinting at you know I'm so glad we reconnected do you remember when it was all three of us because all of the memories they're dredging up from the past had to be all three of them because it's not like sure uh Mirabella and Arsenault hung out after the Black Cottage and before the story, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. so... They're all in the same playing field. You would think if they're reminiscing, there'd be at least some part that was like, oh, Catherine was there too, or oh, remember when Catherine did this funny thing, or, you know, and maybe they'd still lament that she'd changed a lot, but we didn't even see any of that, and that's what it was bothering me so much about the first few books, but I get Mirabella hasn't brought Arsenoy along on the journey at all, so it does make sense that she would, like, not get how she's suddenly on Catherine's side or what changed because she didn't Mirabella could have waited or like left a better note or handled it better I feel like instead of just literally disappearing and I guess I would feel better if Mira truly was being impartial but she's not like she tells Kat about Arsenault's dream of the Blue Queen which I think you know she's trying to be helpful and that's not too bad but then she also tells Kat to not let Billy go. She's like, Billy's the only thing Arsenault cares about. You need to use him as leverage. Like, she kind of is helping Catherine in a way and doing things that will hurt Arsenal. Yeah, it's literally impossible to actually remain impartial because to gain right. one's trust, you are betraying the other, sort of. Yeah, and she kind of... And it's a very fine line and she's not necessarily walking it cleanly. Yeah, and I mean, and I think that comes out a little bit when Arsenault sneaks in to try and rescue her. Mm-hmm. And like... You know, they have that, try and have that distraction. Mm-hmm. And they have that confrontation where she's just like, no, I'm here in my own will. Like, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> I'm not coming back with you. And again, okay, so when she left, the last time Mirabella and Arsenault had seen each other, Mirabella was going to war with Jules and mm-hmm. she was climbing the mountain. So you would think that they would at least want to meet again afterwards, even if... That's where I'm like, I feel like Mirabella shouldn't have just left. I feel like at a minimum she should have like left in the night and like talked to Arsenoy before she left and been like, hey, what did you learn on the mountain? Hey, I saw Jules lose her mind and our baby, something's going on with our baby sister and I need to figure out what it is. Yeah, especially since like she, if she wanted to help Arsenoy at all, Mm -hmm. she wouldn't have wasted all of their efforts trying to like stage that intervention to go rescue her. Like Mm -hmm. that was a huge waste on their part. And that's, you know... Wasn't that why um, Catherine ended up sending her queens into Roe? What do you mean? Because, like, she gets word of, like, the rebels. Oh, yeah. That are, like, planning something. And they were planning to, like, infiltrate to get Mira. And again, she was also friends with Billy. And she knows Billy was only there trying to save her. And... But this is where it, like, gets tricky because even though they are sisters, they haven't established that trust yet. And there is a lot of politics involved. And it is sort of this 
and in some ways I'm glad she didn't let Billy go because uh, who was it who ignored Catherine's orders and still poisoned the two that they released? Amelia. No, Genevieve. It was Genevieve. Genevieve. Okay. Yes. Because, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. So Catherine frees the other two rebels. They return with Arsenault, but Genevieve poisons their gags so that as soon as they arrive, they die. And then Amelia gets angry, and in revenge, she sneaks into Graves Drake Manor and then kidnaps Peter. Yeah, which is just... Like, in revenge. It reminds me a little bit of the short story we read before, where you have... And I mean, really, in any situation, but even though we have sort of this almost religious belief that the queens are supposed to be queens, Mm -hmm. you still have these people in power who are sort of doing what they want or think is right and ignoring... You know, kind of like working around. So Catherine did not give permission or suggest or do anything about poisoning them. But Genevieve was just like, no, we shouldn't let them go free. You know, I'll technically follow orders, but. I wonder, I mean, that's going to have really bad consequences now that Peter is kidnapped because Catherine is going to lose her. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she already ordered Roe to sack Bastion City. Isn't that kind of like where it ends or where we left off? Yeah, I think you're right. She sent Ro to, like, go attack Bastion City, I think, in revenge for losing Peter. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think Mira has put everyone in a rather odd place, and, like, I think she is trying to navigate things and be impartial. Like, she tells Catherine all about the rebels so that Billy won't be tortured. But then she's also like, but you might want to keep hold of him because you can control Arsenal that way. It's just, like... Yeah, but I think that was like a political safety move to gain trust. It's just, it's it's a mess. It's a very it's a delicate thing, and a lot of things <laughs> could be misinterpreted on all sides. She's really like in a dangerous situation still, even though, like, she could lose both of them. <laughs> yeah, she could. And she's, Mira is also in a dangerous situation because Catherine is now really using her to try and fix this mist problem. Like, as soon as she arrives, Catherine, like, sends her into the mist oh, yeah. to be like, hey, um, let's see if you can fix this. And then they, like, gather all the elementals because they're like, well, if any elemental can control the mist, then we don't need Mira and we can kill her. <laughs> and that's a lot of that, I think, still sort of makes sense from a political standpoint. They haven't built the trust yet. I think Mirabella handled some of that well. And she does want what's good for the island and defeating the mist. But, yeah, it's kind of crazy at the same time. And even sending the other elementals there... And, like, risking their lives and, uh, I don't know. There's just a lot going on. But now, so at the very end, Catherine has told Mirabella what's up and asked her to bear the triplets. And Mm -hmm. Mirabella's like, I don't know about that yet. I know. And I liked that because that was Catherine being vulnerable. You know, Mm -hmm. like, admitting, like, I am am poisoned and I can't do this by myself. And they, like, don't they share the story of Ilian and how Daphne kind of took her place? And so they kind of were like could you please do the same for me? Like, I think Catherine very much wants to continue the tradition of, like, bearing the triplets. Like, she wants to continue the role. Um, I don't feel like Miras really does. So I don't know if she's going to agree to it. I don't know either, but I think she does want to help Catherine get rid of the dead queens. And it seems like Catherine's been trying yeah. to deal with that on her... Like, that's sort of why Mirabella came back, I think. And it seems like Catherine's been trying to deal with that on her own by, like, testing out sending them to Roe, but I also don't understand what her end goal is, because I feel like even when she sends them away, some of them stay with her, right? Mm-hmm. And she is trying to protect Mirabella, which is good, because the dead queens want Mirabella's power, and she doesn't want to give it to them, but I'm, I don't really know how this resolves, or even what Catherine's thinking. I'm also confused by what she can keep from them versus what they insist, like, what, so I guess they can't read her thoughts unless she's directing them towards... Or, like, how can she come up with a plan when they're inside her body, I guess? 
I have no idea. But I, I think that Catherine wanting to keep them from Mira is purely a selfish thing because I think she already thinks Mira is too strong and to give her the power of the dead of the undead queens would make her like doubly strong. So I just don't know if Catherine. Oh, I thought she was starting to see them as a burden and felt like if. Oh, it was like protecting her. Protecting her and protecting the island, I think. But I could be wrong. And again, we still haven't resolved the issue of it seems like both sides have reached the conclusion that the only way to defeat the mist is to kill Mirabella. Although I guess in theory, if the mist is rising against the dead queens, maybe if they can banish the dead queens again somehow, that would be enough. Yeah. And and I mean, we did kind of learn that, didn't we? Mm Because I kind of was always wondering, like, why is the mist rising? And I think now we finally have that answer, like... It's because the dead queens are inhabiting Catherine and these queens are rising when they should not have been rising. And maybe that it has to do a little bit with Jules too rising as like an, a queen who shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it is mostly these undead queens. So I don't know how killing Mira is going to solve that problem now though. Yeah. Although if Mira dies, then I win the bet. So that's true. And <laughs> they, that out they also do say that like this was surprising to me. The whole thing about Daphne and Queen Ilian and how Queen Ilian like threw herself off the cliffs or something, and they weren't sure if Daphne pushed her or if it was a fall. But there's something about like the island always wins and sisters always kill sisters, and so that. When I read that, I was like, oh my god, Katie's going to win the bet. <laughs> so I was like, if the island always wins. But I also, I do feel like while that seems to be true, I also, again, to earlier in this episode when I was talking about, I'm predicting that like the whole system's about to be thrown out. So part true. of that could be, yes, at the end of the day, there are at least multiple sisters, if not three sisters. Or maybe the island won't always win because we did get that little bit with um, Magical's baby, Fen. Mm-hmm. He broke the curse. And I think it would be cool if we like defeat this old magic and there's no more queens and no more triplets and no more mist and mm-hmm. even no more yeah. magic. But I hope if that happens, we still learn a little bit more about why that all came about in the first place. Like the fact that there's no historical record of the first queen and there's just this like urban legend or whatever that she was actually the goddess mm-hmm. is cool but I want to understand more why this island developed magic and the rest of the world didn't if all of a sudden it's gone at the end of the book I hope we understand how it came about in the first place I Does agree that yeah totally um okay what do you think about Arsenault and Amelia and what they did to Jules oh yeah um I don't know I kind of felt like it was actually a relatively easy solution considering like, I'm expecting something to go wrong with it, or there to be an extreme cost, which there always is with low magic. I sort of feel like it was done too quickly, and it was very creepy, that whole scene where they were actually doing Ew, the performance. I know, when they're, like, dipping the... the bread and the blood uh, and eating, ugh. Yeah. That, that was too much for me. <laughs> and I think it was interesting. Like, I get that Amelia admitted that she also loved... Or that she had romantic feelings for Jules. I called that, didn't I? Yes. Uh, I don't know if Jules feels the same way, but I definitely picked up on Amelia liking Jules that way. Yes. Or I think yes. But I, it still seems 
I don't know, since it hasn't been reciprocated at all, it seems a little, it makes me nervous because what, Amelia is like also a teenager. Like, I'm just imagining like the crushes people had in high school are, were so like kind of willy nilly. And volatile. That I wouldn't want to rest that strong of a curse magic thing on something that like, part of me is like, okay, I get that she like really cares for her right now, but like, I'm not convinced this is true love forever and ever yet. I also have a sneaky suspicion that Amelia is going to die. Well, I hope Jules dies instead. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just because I think... Because everyone dies except for the four people I've predicted. <laughs> <laughs> I just want no, to... But, but, like, whenever they were talking about the price of low magic and someone mm-hmm. says, like, maybe you pay through the ones you love, like losing mm-hmm. Joseph, and I'm just... I feel like Amelia might succumb to that, too. Or I guess Jules could, too, because she's the one that Amelia loves. And she's the one that Arsenoi loves, and she's the one who performed the spell. Oh, Jules is going to die. <laughs> Crap. You're probably right. But I don't know what that gets us, ultimately. So I don't know yeah. if that's really worth it, unless it's somehow, I don't know. To your point, if Amelia dies, then that also like kind of leaves this curse. Or like, what does that mean for this strong magic and the curse and yada yada? But, and- yeah. And all, and also like I didn't like how Jules is, like I really thought that Jules' gift wasn't gonna be t- broken that that was gonna be like kind of psychosomatic all in her head and yep. then it kind of bummed me out that like it did break when Magical died even though Magical said that it wouldn't. I know I agree. I feel like that's an unanswered. And I know she had that like bloody cord in the jar that like Kara gives her, but that like didn't make sense to me like they still had to tether the gift again and they even had to tether it which is different than what she did the first time yeah that's true because like bring in another person to like get it under control and i just it sort of sounded like what magical left her was not enough to do anything right except like make people mad that she couldn't figure out what to do about it (laughs) typical magical man come on (laughs) but i agree i feel like they the author kinder blake went out of her way to bring up the point that magical's death did not release the curse and then her death did release the curse and it's like wait why was that is it just that like low magic is more but i just wish they had, had addressed it i agree yeah me too and i mean yeah it's cool that like now amelia and arsenault are both tethered to jewels like i like that idea i'm interested to see what comes of it but like why did you set it up that way in a way that doesn't make sense i'm also still not even entirely clear why having two powers makes you go mad yeah me either i mean i guess it's just part of the magic system like it's Kind of like a curse, I guess. Yeah. I just feel like I have like a lot of genetic questions about this whole <laughs> world, but whatever. Okay. And since we said it before, or in the last book, we did learn when we got the backstory of the queens that Catherine is a weak naturalist. And I know right now she still has all the queens exerting a weak amount of power, but I'm kind of curious if at some point we'll see her naturalist tendencies come into play in some way. Like, if she if she uncovers that she's not a poisoner, she'll ever be able to, like, explore yeah. and embrace that. And, like, okay, I liked the I, I liked that now that Catherine has multiple powers, that she kind of is slightly going insane a little bit. Like, I, we haven't really seen it that much, but, like, she's definitely, like, losing control, I would say. Yeah, but part of me feels like she's going insane because there's, like, five billion personalities fighting inside her head and like all this stuff and it's not like the power itself as much as it is like she literally like imagine voices in your head all the time yeah i i couldn't handle that but if if having two gifts is a curse and makes you lose your mind now that amelia and arsenault 
are linked to Jules, they technically have glimpses of Jules' power too. So now they technically have two gifts and they seem fine. Yeah, right? again, I don't fully understand yeah. the rules of this magic. And I still don't know if we have a good answer for how much of Catherine is left if the queens leave. Because she hasn't been completely free of the queens yeah. at all. So I'm curious, maybe she'll still, maybe they will rid the queens from her and free her and then she'll like die but have a moment mm-hmm. with both her sisters holding her hands and... Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> That's my new predict. Maybe, maybe Catherine will die. You know how I always thought she was the least likely to die? Maybe she will. I thought she was the one who would die. But I still stand by my thing that all sisters are going to come out of this alive. And Jules? I don't know about Jules. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I think at least one of the four potential queens have to die. Oh, man. So do you want to tell me about your um, research now about comas? Yeah, so I didn't know a lot about comas. And, like, I know sometimes people go into comas because something happens to them and that's the body's reaction. And sometimes they go into comas because the doctors put them in a coma. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea kind of, like, is something I don't like to think about too much because it seems weird if you can't get people out of a coma, but then you – I don't know. Like, that whole concept of some of them are medically induced and some of them are, like, your body – whatever. So I was sort of looking into – what are people's coma experiences like? And they were kind of starting to creep me out. But everyone sort of has a different story. Like some people literally remember nothing. Some people have very vivid dreams or very long dreams. Like I was reading this one story and this person, they weren't even out for very long. And they dreamed that they like grew up, met a girl, got married to her, had two kids. The kids were growing up and... Like, a week later, they woke up from their coma and were, like, literally shocked. Like, they felt like they lost their family and their kids and, like, the love of their life and, like, went into, like, a serious depression for a few years and, like, could not deal with, quote-unquote, reality because, like, this dream world that they were living in in their coma or whatever alternate reality they were in or whatever, like, was so vivid and real to them, which just, like, also freaked me out. It's like they almost lived their life while they they were in a coma. Yeah. Like, but in their minds. Oh, that's so creepy. And some people have, like, the out-of-body experience, or they'll remember a song that was playing, or some, you know, people talking to them. Other people can't remember anything. You know, uh, a lot of people still, so you might think, like, once you come out of the coma, you're, like, good to go. But a lot of people have a lot of trouble distinguishing, especially if they were having, like, vivid dreams, distinguishing between what's real and not after they come out of the coma, too. They, like, still don't trust reality because of what they experienced while they were in the coma. And there was also, this is just stupid, someone, it was, I was just like reading these different account, accounts about coma experiences, and someone wrote, I've never been in a coma, but I do live in Oklahoma, so I imagine it's pretty similar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, that's a good burn. <laughs> yeah, it's not funny. Um, so then I was reading just kind of some other crazy stories. So there mm-hmm. was this guy, his name is Ben McMahon, he grew up in Australia, And he studied a little bit of French and Mandarin back in the day, but was never fluent in them. And in 2012, he had a car accident and he was in a coma for a week. And like the doctors didn't even think he would survive, but somehow he beat the odds and he woke up, but he couldn't speak English and he could only speak Mandarin. What? And he could write in Mandarin. And eventually he did regain the ability to speak English, but he never lost the ability to speak Mandarin. And he was, he like moved to Shanghai and he gives walking tours of the city. (laughs) And I guess he's now a host of a TV show in Shanghai because he's like 
he speaks it Mandarin so well now. And so I was reading other stories about people who, like, learned languages somehow in their coma. So I think they all are, there's not a lot of, like, scientific stuff that I found out. Um, There is some science about how people can lose the ability to speak their primary language um, if certain things have happened in the brain. And so, like, there's some speculation that if you can't access your primary language and you can't default to that, then you're, like, more able to access the secondary language, which maybe helps or whatever. But basically, there's not a lot of good science that I read about why that happens, but it's happened to multiple people. So there's also this 13-year-old in Croatia named Sandra Ralik, and she had been studying German, definitely wasn't fluent in it, she was in a coma for just 24 hours, and when she woke up, she could only speak German. Couldn't speak Croatian or whatever her native language was. What? Isn't that crazy? I just don't understand how that's possible. Like, because, like, to learn a language, you have to be exposed to it. And if you're not exposed to it when you're in a coma, how do you learn it? Well, again, I think this is what... So, I don't think any of these people had no exposure to it. So, they definitely yeah, wouldn't like... have considered themselves fluent before. So, again, I think you... I think there's some argument for your brain like picks up more than you realize and it might be like kind of a default thing to like resort to your primary language or if it's like a you know safety net thing you maybe they know more than they thought they did but yeah there was some guy (laughs) who woke up in a hospital bed in california he was an american and he was speaking swedish and claimed his name was so his actual name was michael boatwright but he claimed his name was johan Eck, and Yeah, I guess at some point he had lived in Sweden in his past, so that's where they think the Swedish came from. But it is, like, it's never like they learn a random, completely unrelated language, but one of these people was only in a coma for 24 hours. I think it's just... And you still would know... There'd be so so many words you still wouldn't know, you know, like... I mean, so I don't know how much they really, like, were exposed to it, or... Like, I mean, I'm guessing they've, like, been watching TV, or, like... Especially in Croatia, I'm sure that there was more German around than they realized if they, like, traveled through Europe some or what. You know, I mean, like, maybe yeah. it's not as crazy as it seems, but I would it understand is crazy. If, if, like, you were, let's say you were in a coma and the entire time someone played, you know, a Spanish TV show or, like, just left the Spanish TV on the entire time you were in a coma and then you came out and, like, were able to talk. And it, I totally get that, but, like... To go from, like, having brief exposure or, like, uh, mild exposure, some exposure to being fluent, that's nuts. Well, I think it's almost crazier. I don't even know if they're necessarily fluent as much as they, like, lost their primary language. So the only language they have access to is the secondary (laughs) language that was not something they relied on to communicate before. And I think it just goes to show, like, how much we don't know about the brain again. And Mm -hmm. so comas are usually related to some kind of head injury a lot of times and, like swelling or blood in the brain or you know something going on where the brain stuff gets messed up so it sort of makes sense that if the right thing got rewired or unwired or I don't know again I don't I'm not a brain specialist I don't know enough about it but it was just that was like one of my favorite stories I read and I like went down this rabbit hole of all these people who like woke up speaking another language wow that's what I want to do that sounds if I could go into a coma for 24 hours and wake up bilingual I would do it Medically induce that coma, please. Yeah, really. I've learned so many languages. Okay, here's also kind of an interesting story. So in 1988, there was this guy, Jan Grzbetsky, who was working on the railroad and received a head injury while trying to connect two railroad cars. So according to a report that came out, he was in a coma for 19 years and his wife, like, took care of him and, like, moved him so he wouldn't get bed sores and all this stuff. And then... Mm -hmm. 
when he woke up, it was like 19 years later, and he was like, whoa, he was in Poland. He was like, whoa, like, it's not a communist <sighs> country anymore, and he, like, had 11 new grandchildren he had never met, and, oh like, this was published in all these different press around the world. So his story is making headlines, but he claimed that he was only in the coma for four years, but when he woke up from the coma, he was still mute and paralyzed, <laughs> but aware of what was happening around him. So he, like, was able to watch television, and he understood that, like, Poland was no longer communist and stuff like this. Oh, my gosh. But um, I thought that was crazy, too. And, like, how – I don't know. Some of these people who, like, hear things about, like, people discussing if they're going to make it or not and being unable to respond is, like, another one of my biggest no, fears. No, that's a ter- – I, I would rather just be in a coma. I know. Like, be completely out of it. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, but, yeah, and some people wake up from comas and are either – Somehow they've, like, lost the memory. So maybe they were only in the coma for a little bit of time, but they, like, wake up and think it's 15 years prior. Like, there was this one woman who, I forget what the years were, but basically she had been married with two kids, but she went back in time in her mind and thought she had just had her first son, who was now 14 years old, and was still with her ex. And so her husband was in the room, and she thought he worked at the hospital and, like, didn't recognize her son because she thought he was still an infant and, like, didn't recognize her other children at first and stuff like that. So it's just kind of crazy, like, what the brain remembers and doesn't remember and how things connect or not, and I don't know. It was kind of crazy to me. I agree. That's fascinating. Terrifying and fascinating. And a lot of them were, like, really... A lot of them are really depressing stories, but yeah, you might wonder what is a medically induced coma because I wondered that. So with a medically induced coma, what happens is that you take a, or not you, the doctor takes a drug and administers it until there's a certain pattern of brain waves in the EEG on the monitor. And it's similar to what patients with brain injuries who are in comas, it's similar to that pattern. So if that okay. pattern is there then the doctor feels comfortable that the patient is in a drug-induced coma. Hmm. And the reason you do that is to protect the brain. So if you've had a brain injury, it, I guess, alters the metabolism of the brain. So blood flow may not go everywhere it's supposed to the right way or something. So if you can reduce the amount of energy different brain areas need by kind of like shutting down the brain a little bit. It can protect it. Then it allows the brain to heal and the swelling to go down. and protect the like at-risk areas i mean that makes sense it's just terrifying that they can figure out how to get it in that state and then bring it back so yeah so if it's a medically induced coma once you remove the drugs if you're like a normal healthy brain once the drugs are gone you are awake and normal again but if you're in a non-drug-induced coma just a regular out on the street coma a lot like a lot of times it's just a waiting game and like hoping that you come out of it or I mean I think there's a little bit more to it than that but I mean they can't necessarily predict when or why or how in all cases but that's terrifying yeah and there's a lot of like other risks and side effects of it so like you know if you take the drugs for your brain injury to put you in a medically induced coma it also does things like reduce your blood pressure so you have to be on other medicines to keep your blood pressure up and make sure that your heart is pumping in the right way and even though you're like protecting the brain on the one hand it's also your brain's not getting blood everywhere the same way it was before which hopefully is helping it but could also if you do it for too long like the drugs can accumulate like there's a lot of it seems like a kind of Obviously, like, like they do it. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of good information out there and reasons to do it, and it often works successfully if people go into medically induced comas. But it's not something that we should probably do just to learn learn another language, I guess. No. (laughs) No. 
Probably not. Just stick with your Duolingo. <laughs> they do say that um, it's like the drug that they use is one of the most used drugs in all of anesthesia. So it is like, oh, so it's, it's a difference common. of dosage, but it's like a drug that they know and use often. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. So they said like a regular coma or whatever. I don't know if regular. I don't know how to describe a non medically induced coma. I like coma. how you called you called it a, an out on the street coma. <laughs> that, that's how I'm distinguishing it. So an out of the street out on the street uh, coma often results from some kind of trauma or brain injury or a stroke or a drug overdose. Anything like that can ultimately cause a coma. Oh God. And they also said sometimes it's hard to know. Like usually, if you're in whether your body has gone into a coma out on the street or in a medically induced <laughs> environment, usually like there's a lot of other, it's usually a bad situation all around. So it's hard to just kind of narrow into what's happening with the brain and the coma part, because like a lot of times you've had, your body's gone through a lot of trauma or you've been in yeah. some kind of serious accident or. Well, I heard, I read, or I, I listened to, <laughs> I heard, I read, I listened to, I listened to um, a, a radio lab podcast uh-huh. where a girl contracted rabies and they put her in an, a medically induced coma to give her brain to like slow down her brain to like slow down the virus and she ended uh-huh. up it was like one of the very few cases where someone survived contracting rabies and it was a awesome. fascinating podcast it was like oh my gosh it was terrifying but also like really interesting how they did this like very controversial move to try and save her and they were like, we honestly have no idea if this is going to work or not. And it somehow it did. That's crazy. It's, yeah. again, every time we look into medical stuff or brain stuff, really, both cases, it's like amazing what we've figured out. And it's also amazing what we still don't understand in both ways. It's like, wow, our bodies and our brains especially are so interesting and complex. But also, wow, look at all this stuff we've done as a human race to like, use medicine and technology and all kinds of things to like do cool stuff. But a lot of these stories, again, it was just sort of like, well, hope I'm reading all these things where people are like, I'm not sure if they're ever going to come out or who knows when they'll come out or yeah. let's pull the plug and then they miraculously recover or, or whatever down the road. But And then again, like I said, a lot of them have, first of all, a lot of them who are in comas have other medical issues going on, like I said, because they've been in like, there's other stuff in the body that needs to heal. But a lot of them have like uh, things going on too with reality versus coma life after they come out which is also kind of fascinating to think about like this guy who was in a depression because he lost a wife and kids he never had in our world yeah and like what an unexpected side effect you know like you think oh my gosh I'm finally out of this something to celebrate like who would have thought that that would be part of the healing process well and oh I just found the story again so he also he said he never saw the movie Inception because I guess someone like compared it to Inception Mm -hmm. but he like one day was Again, so he's got these two kids, he's married, he's happy, life is pretty good. Not amazing, but pretty good. And he even, like, remembered, like, meeting his wife, and she dated a few guys before he finally won her over, and it was, like, two years before they got married, and then they, again, had two kids. Like, it was, like, a long period of time that he lived in this, or, like, has memories of this other world. But he was sitting on the couch one day, and he thought the lamp looked weird, Hmm. and he, like, couldn't look away from it, and he, like, stopped eating and was staring at the lamp, and his wife got worried, and uh, all of a sudden, he, like, started to realize that the lamp wasn't real, and then it, like, exploded, and he realized that the house wasn't real, and the wife wasn't real, and all this stuff, and it brought him out of his coma, Hmm. and he opened his eyes, and he was... So he was still lying on the sidewalk surrounded by people that he didn't know who were freaking out. So he, like, literally had all of this happen while he was... What? Before he even got to the hospital. So it was... 
so he was he like dreamt a lifetime in a few seconds i mean i don't know if it was a few seconds or like several minutes minutes, but yeah like less than an hour probably that's insane yeah he was like knocked unconscious in a fight and woke up before on his way to the hospital base or like while they were getting ready to send him to the hospital and then again went into a three-year depression grieving the loss of his wife and children and dealing with the fact that they had never existed in the first place that's so weird and he thought he was like going insane and he said that sometimes when he dreams he still sees his son out like in his periphery of his dream like he can still remember what he looks like yeah but he also said his son hasn't aged in his dreams he's still five years old that is so creepy i know i can't even imagine and then again it goes back to this idea of how our brains work and what you can trust and i don't know that like whenever you dream i always heard that like you dream in real time you know like if you dream something for an hour like an hour has passed in real life but that is crazy a whole lifetime. And that makes sense to me. And I have like weird dreams, but even when I feel like a lot of time passed in my dreams, it's usually like, oh, no, it was just like I had a one minute here and a one minute there. And for yeah. some reason, I knew that three days had passed. Not like I actually remember like sitting on the couch doing nothing or whatever, you know, like, yeah. yeah. But this guy really sounds like, I mean, it was a normal life too. It wasn't like some crazy like adventure. Yeah. I solved world peace and flew to the moon and I don't know. But anyways, that's what I learned this week. I want that to be, like, made into a book, like a fantasy book or something. I like know. That concept. But I also don't want to think about it anymore. I know. It's creepy. It was funny. I, like, I thought I'd learn a lot more about, like, the science and stuff, but instead I just, like, got into these stories of, like, people talking about what happened to them. And That's exactly what I would have done. The language thing was the coolest thing to me. Very cool. What about you? Um, okay. So, like I said, I was struggling to think of something to research, but um, I fixated on this mist... And I really liked the scene where Catherine goes out to see if, like, she can do something with the mist. And, like, she takes um, Mira to the spot where the mist was first created. And she reaches mm-hmm. out her hand and the mist, like, eats her hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot about that part. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, the scene where they send out all the elementals to try and control the mist, it, like, eats all the elementals. Like, that was so scary. It was, like, it reminded me of Stephen King's The Mist, actually, a lot. So then I started researching um, times when, like, mist or fog got completely out of hand. And that led me to the Great London Smog of 1952. Oh, yay. I'm so excited. Have you seen... Wasn't there an episode of The Crown that... Yes, that's exactly what I just started thinking of. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, I guess London Fog has been, like, a thing for a while. Basically, like... Londoners have been complaining about unclean air since the Middle Ages. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's a long record. <laughs> a really long time. I guess like in London as the forests began to clear and began began shrinking, a lot of London households turned to um using sea coal to, you know, to to burn their fires aside instead of wood. And this sea coal produced massive clouds of smoke. And it was so bad that King Edward I actually banned the sale of sea coal. (laughs) And he said the sale or consumption was forbidden on pain of torture and death. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's intense. (laughs) But wood was so expensive that people just didn't care. And they were like, well, we have to stay warm. So they did it anyway. So is this only a problem in England, though? Or was this like a 
Well, this is interesting. So, I mean, smog and pollution is a problem, like, pretty much anywhere where the Industrial Revolution happened. But London is really unique because it's a basin, and it's located in the estuary of the Thames River. And because of that, it makes it especially prone to, like, a natural mist. And Hmm. the moisture gets trapped in the valley. And that, combined with the coal smoke, just creates a maelstorm of of problems. And basically, it just results in this intense fog where like you've probably heard them being like oh it's a real pea super out there you know i have not heard them say that really okay that's like how they would describe fog like it's as thick as pea soup i like it anyway (laughs) (laughs) so in 1873 was the that was the first unusually thick and persistent fog and it caused 268 deaths from bronchitis so is that, so you die, you get sick from the fog, and then yeah. it eventually, it's a lung infection that's just bad and whatever. Yep. Okay. And then in 1879, a fog in London lasted for four months. Whoa. And this was at the height of the coal-fueled Industrial Revolution. And so do people, because I feel like in The Crown, it wasn't like, like, when did people realize that the, like, did people go to the out of the country or out of, out to the countryside or did they not have a choice or did they not realize or did they people probably did no I, they realized that it was bad but there wasn't a lot to do because there wasn't really an alternative yeah. to this coal fueling revolution that happened is there anything you can do like in terms of like just wearing a handkerchief around your mouth and nose help anything or does it just make you feel yeah, better some people would do that some people would do that i think a lot of the people who perished were children or the elderly who were, like, especially vulnerable. Susceptible, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sucks. Because kids didn't have enough problems back then. Yeah, I know, really. Um, so then gradually, in, like, the late 1800s, electric engines replaced steam and gas fires grew in popularity, so it began to help the um, fog a little bit. But then, in 1952, there was an epic fog that happened and it lasted from friday december 5th to tuesday december 9th and it caused major disruption it reduced visibility completely um it the fog even like if you'd open a door the fog would like drift inside oh man they had to like shut down transportation um animals died like it was a massive, massive problem. Londoners said they couldn't see their feet. Birds were de- flying into buildings. And interestingly, this is terrible, but there was a huge increase in robberies because thieves were able to like disappear into the fog and not get caught. I could see that. So it was just like this massive time of chaos. It would be so scary because... Okay, I feel like a lot of times when there's something in the air, it's like you can't see it, which is scary in its own Right? But, like, the fact that you couldn't see, like, your own feet, like you were saying, and, like... Yeah. And probably not knowing how long it was going to last, or, you know, I mean, just, like, not... That's the scary part, not knowing when it would go away. Yeah. Like, it's one thing if you're like, okay, until next Tuesday, this is going to suck, and we're just going to, like, avoid going outside as much as possible and whatever. But you have no idea. What if it's four months again? Or what if it's forever? (laughs) So they estimated that... Originally, they estimated that between 4,000 and 6,000 people died during these few days. Um, They now estimate it closer to be 12,000. And over 100,000 people were made ill. And again, was the primary cause of death just your lungs get sick? Yeah, like 
um, just like lung disease, um, bronchitis, infection, um, and then accidents too. I was going to say the visibility, I guess, too, would... mm -hmm. And the hospitals were like overrun and stuff, right? So just even getting adequate care was probably hard. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, this um, was known to be the worst air pollution event in the history of the United Kingdom. It also had a really big effect on environmental research and government regulation because they finally passed the Clean Air Act in 1956. And that, you know, they gave financial incentives for people to replace coal fires with alternatives Mm -hmm. and they just made a lot of regulations to try and prevent this from happening again um they introduced like smoke-free areas in the cities they limited the burning of coal that kind of thing so the reason it happened like why like what was the conditions that led to this like massive outbreak of fog that lasted they said that it was just a bizarre combination of weather patterns Mm -hmm. and bad chemistry from the coal burning. So, like, I guess the coal that was burning for residential use in power plants formed, like, combined to form, like, sulfuric acid, essentially. So so the the coal created sulfur dioxide, and then somehow that created, that somehow turned into sulfuric acid. So it was basically, like, acid rain. Like, the fog was... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was, like this rancid acidic fog i can't even imagine what i would i'm like trying to think of what i would do if i like woke up one morning and looked outside and it was like the world was covered in fog i have no idea but i mean i was also looking up just like i mean i guess i'd google what should i do the world is covered in fog but (laughs) they didn't have the internet back then like that no they didn't and they had no idea when it would end yeah. Um, but the World Health Organization estimates that around 7 million people die every year from exposure to polluted air. And that can lead to stroke, lung cancer, pulmonary diseases, respiratory infections, pneumonia. And it's the fourth leading cause of death. So where is the worst air nowadays? Like, is it still in, is it in like third world countries that are? No, no, no. Or I guess not third, but is it in more like developing countries that haven't caught up? Or is it in countries that have been producing stuff for a long time? Or is it in, I don't know, or does it depend on geography? I would think that it would be somewhere where there was a lot of industry, but Mm -hmm. somewhere that didn't have the regulations necessary to control it. Let me Mm -hmm. look it up. Oh, most polluted air on the planet. Okay, these are the cities that have the most polluted air. China, Saudi Arabia. I know these are countries not cities but <laughs> that works there it's a list of cities i'm just gonna read the countries so all of them have been china so far <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure it's um kuwait is 42 and again i guess that may like i would think it would be countries where they're producing a lot now but to your point like the regulation side hasn't necessarily caught up yeah it looks like it's mostly mostly china bangladesh i don't know pakistan or just where you have so many people and so much industry and just yeah exactly. confined space Mongolia, yeah, India. Man, oh man, if the air can kill you. I mean, I do remember, like, even just walking around in Chicago, I mean, I feel like I have developed a a much worse cough than I had before I moved here, and I remember, like, one time it was raining, and, like, the rain was, like, burning my eyes because of the pollution, like... It's terrible. I know, it's like, I know we're a lot better than some of these other countries, but, like, we still got a way to go. Doesn't mean we're good, Yeah. yeah. So that was my research. Interesting. So between us, we're going to get lung infections by walking outside and enter comas. Get comas on the street. 
Yeah, out on the street. Gosh. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, of course the research is going to be dreary, given the themes in this book. This is, like, not That's surprising fair. to me. Yeah, this hasn't been a super uplifting book, at least not so far. No. But hopefully we'll find out what's up with the five dark fates and how this all links together and which queen will die since one of them has to and uh and come up with a fan name we haven't done that yet oh yeah oh <laughs> we almost forgot i'm probably gonna forget again so i should write myself a note cool do you want a joke yes please to lighten things up a little bit yeah so i tried to re- i tried to look up fog jokes and what came up was dog jokes <laughs> i like it i like dogs so that's what you're gonna get. Okay. I like your song. <laughs> These are so dumb, just so you know. Okay. Okay. What kind of breed do- of dog does Dracula have? Um, a bat <laughs> dog. I don't know what. <laughs> a bloodhound. <laughs> so that's a good one. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> what did the dog say to the tree? You're mine? bark (laughs) oh man i could totally see my dad telling that joke while walking the dog um what type of dog doesn't bark uh i have no idea hush puppy oh man these are just getting worse and worse and worse oh my goodness so (laughs) all right one more what happens when it rains cats and dogs (laughs) you get new puppies i don't know what he might step in a poodle You know what's extra funny about that? Because poodles are water dogs, so I bet if it's really rainy and there's all the actual puddles around, the poodles would like to play in the puddles. You'll step in a poodle in a puddle? It almost makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, you know, you'll step in a poodle puddle. Uh, but speaking of dogs that don't make noise, I was going to say something about a sleeping dog, but I was thinking about the other night, Toby, in the middle of the night, like, started barking in his sleep. <gasps> And woke James and I both up, and then I was, like, petting him, and he still didn't wake up, and then he was, like, he was just making all these noises, and he's not, sometimes he'll dream and, like, move his paws, but he's not usually a big noise maker in his sleep, and it was just hilarious, but also, like, four in the morning, and I was really grumpy. (laughs) Banjo talks in her sleep all the time. So funny. She makes this, like, really loud little squeaking noise, and it sounds like there's, like, a squeak toy inside of her. It's so stinking cute. But then I always have to wake her up because I'm afraid she's having a nightmare, so I don't let her do it for very long. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, dogs. Better than fog. I'm glad I'm glad you found dog jokes. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad my Google, like, corrected that. Um, if you guys have any dog jokes or fog jokes or... Coma stories. Yeah. Any stories mm-hmm. at all, really, um, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com, or you can follow us at Instagram and Facebook. For next week, we will finish this book and therefore this series and finally be done. What's gonna happen? Yeah, I can't wait. I feel like we've been here for a while. I think because it's a long series and we did the novellas, it feels like it's been an especially long series. This is like Lunar Chronicles long for me. That's true. It's actually because Lunar Chronicles was four books and we did short stories. So yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. And they were long books. Yeah, that's also very true. All right. Well, we'll finish it up for next week. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. (laughs) 
M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.